1: Many of the guests, like us, came to Keto for Weight Loss and have stayed for their well-being, numerous health benefits, and because they are living their best lives. We hope you will be inspired to incorporate these ideas into your own health journey so that you can feel better than you ever have before.
0: Thinking about starting keto? Take a listen to episode number two, What is Keto and How to Start? Welcome to episode 004. Today we'll be interviewing Audrey Boyle who I met at the PHC conference last year. We were sitting on the same table and had a good chat then. I think you recognised Audrey from the year before didn't you?
1: Yes yeah definitely from the PHC conference in 2018 and I remember seeing her at 19 but obviously you're a lot braver woman than me so, um you know going up to um to new people but you know kindred folk aren't we all when we're at these um low carb conferences so we, we all love to share and chat um around the the buffet table so it was yeah it's really great that you got to got to meet with her and invited her on for this particular episode yeah.
0: so why don't you tell us a little bit more about Audrey Audrey Boyle runs a Pilates and dance business from coastal Suffolk, where she's lived for over 30 years. Originally from Glasgow, she appreciates the drier, warmer climate and fabulous wetland and grassland wildlife near her home. She's passionate about movement, all sorts from hit to Feldenkrais, Pilates and Chikung. Also, sustainable food production, environmental issues and helping people feel better. She and her husband Charlie have two big children living in Bristol and two parents in their mid-90s living in Ayrshire. Audrey loves to dance, cycle, garden and kayak and experiment with new crops on her allotment. Last year's chickpeas were a fail But she hopes the loofahs planted this season will yield some eco-friendly pot scourers. Who knew that loofahs were actually a plant? No, that was something that I've just learned and a great pot scourer, apparently. Well, Jackie, why don't
1: we push play
0: on the interview with Audrey? She
1: was definitely a bundle of energy and um, hope that the listeners
0: will really enjoy her journey. Let's go. Welcome, Audrey, to the Fabulously Keto podcast. It's fabulous to have you on the show today. Hi, thanks for welcoming me on. It's great to have you. So, tell everybody where you are in the
2: world. Uh, I live in Suffolk, on a village on the coast, a Fishing Village, which is all very pretty. Ah, oh, lovely. And the weather has been fantastic. So, yeah, we're enjoying it. I love to live by the sea. So. But that's not a
0: Suffolk accent, is it? No, not <laughs> originally
2: from Glasgow, but I have been down in Suffolk for about thirty years. Every time I go back north, they say I've lost my accent. And then down here, <laughs> they don't understand what I'm saying if I use my good old vernacular glass region. So, yeah, <laughs> I hope I don't ever lose my accent.
0: No, I love
2: Scottish accents.
0: So, tell us how you got into keto and what led you to it, or low-carb Yeah. Keto.
2: Um, oh, must have been about nine years ago now. Uh, and I'm, I'm more kind of low carb. I make sure I'm in ketosis at least some of the day, but because of my metabolism, I'm pretty slim anyway. So I'm quite a good fat burner. But anyway, I got into a hell low carb about nine years ago. I was at a food festival and the Western Price organization were there talking about raw milk and full fat milk and the fact that, you know, cholesterol and full fat milk weren't bad for the heart and this really challenged me so i thought this is so interesting and i've always hated milk because it's homogenized it's skimmed, it's warm it's you know really revolting but they gave us a, a sample of some really fresh raw full fat milk and i'm telling you it was absolutely amazing so that just got me started investigating the whole cholesterol hypothesis um, and I got more and more interested because I'm interested in diet anyway, interested in exercise. Um, and then that led me to reading the cholesterol con, the great cholesterol con by Malcolm Kendrick, which again really stunned me because everything I was getting from my GP, my friends who were doctors, was that, you know, don't eat cholesterol, don't eat, don't eat high fat foods because that will give you cardiovascular disease. So that really challenged the the status quo for me. So it just led me down the path. And the more I learned, the more kind of interested I got in the whole thing. Yeah. So were you overweight at the time? No, I've always been slim. So I didn't do it for that. I did it because of food production systems. So I like the idea of raw milk rather than processed product, which is what we buy in our supermarkets. Um, I was also interested in optimising my own health. I've always been slim, but I've always felt like my energy has been a bit low. Mm-hmm.
3: Uh,
2: and I, I kind of was experimenting with a glucometer as well at that time um, because I'm a bit of a, I'm a science graduate, but I'm a bit of an experimenter on myself as well. And I noticed that I wasn't tolerating, you know, carbs very well. And, you know, like a bread a slice of bread would send my blood glucose quite high, so I thought there was something not quite right there. So I thought you know a, a more whole food and um, centred diet, with a, a natural amount of uh, fat and a lower carb, and certainly eliminating refined carbs altogether might be the way to go. So that that's what happened there. So I wasn't doing it for weight loss. And in fact, you know, I've got to be careful that I don't lose weight. So. I think a lot of people do do keto and low carb weight loss, but there are other benefits to it as well. So,
1: yeah. And what are the benefits that you have noticed over, well, now it's been what, nearly 10 years?
2: Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I enjoy, I really enjoy food. It's got me back to really um, being interested in food production. And before I trained as a Pilates teacher, so I run my own business on the Suffolk Coast, Pilates and Dance. And before that I was a journalist writing for environmental uh, organisations and covering food and health. So I already had a quite an interest in food production systems, but that really took it to the next level, looking at why everybody was eating so much processed food and what can be kind of and how that was leading to ill health of everybody, including myself probably. So I noticed that I probably had a little bit more energy I was more, to more care in sourcing food and a little bit clearer mentally possibly as well. But I mean, it wasn't dramatic. I just really think it's a sound, a sound concept. And I think it can be amazing for certain people. It doesn't suit everybody, but for certain people, it really makes a difference to their health. Mm-hmm.
1: And how has it changed the way that you source your food in terms of, you know, you're mentioning about processed food and food systems. Yeah. Are you growing your own food or are you obviously committed to sourcing um, unprocessed foods?
2: That, all of these. Uh, so we, we really started um, developing an allotment about 10 years ago and um, the garden as well. So I, I do grow, I me and my partner grow quite a lot of our own food. Uh, we're also lucky in the way that we're in a, a rural area, so we know all the key uh, good food producers around us. And although it's quite highly intensive farming, so there's a lot of uh, artificial fertilizer and pesticide that goes on the crop, there are kind of small producers that grow or rear animals organically. So we're very close to them, so we make sure we access that food, we grow our own, and if we have to go to a supermarket, We buy organic, obviously, and sustainably produced food. Um, Our local butcher, again, because it's a small place, we've got a good relationship with butcher, and he will do us up, you know, like sausages just made of liver and heart, no fillers in lambskins. And, you know, it's fantastic with a nice bit of fat in it as well. So that's really made us take care in sourcing and asking people to, you know, do the food that we would like to buy. And it's actually cheap, you know, sausages made up of offal are cheaper than the ones that I could buy in the supermarket. And also I know the cows that that offal has come from because they graze in the grazing marsh just three miles down the road. So the whole thing's connected. So the cows grazing on the grazing marsh fosters all that fantastic uh, biodiversity. The nutrient-dense diet the cows get from from grazing on a, a biodiverse grassland. And all the surrounding shrubbery is great for their health and improves, improves the nutritional quality of the milk. So it was all beginning to link up for me from my ecology background, my interest in health and environment, and also compassion. You know, I'm a supporter of um, Compassion World Farming as well. Um, so I was beginning to link together. And then <clears throat> I got to know about the microbiome, <laughs> and that was mm. a, whole, a whole different level as well. So loads of strands have come together here for me.
1: Your food miles, yeah. well, literally, you sort of said you've got a very low footprint and a very few miles between, as yeah. you said, you know, the cow to the butcher to your fry pan, Yeah. You know, you're you doing extremely well.
2: Uh, well, absolutely. I mean, it's a real low-mile um, diet, I guess. But, you know, I know I have friends that are vegan and, you know, that's fine, but they buy a lot of processed foods and the almond milks, the soy milks, even the hemp milks are, you know, not sustainably produced. They might be organic, but, you know, they're a processed product, they're nutritionally poor and they're flown in, you know, thousands of miles. So, you know, when people say vegan is better for the planet, I don't know if it is really.
3: Yeah,
0: I would question that literally on just transferring the food across the across the world yes
2: yeah yeah so I think it's important if we can I mean I'm lucky because I live rurally. not everybody can do that if you're living in the middle of a town it's very hard to do that although you can access a lot of good quality product via especially with the recent lockdown people are shopping online a lot more and that gives you access to a whole range of small producers throughout the UK if you want to go there and you know it's not necessarily expensive you know, if you can go to small producers that, you know, again, are rearing their own stock, you know, it's not necessarily more expensive than buying steak at the supermarket. Mm.
1: Well, Luka, like, uh, you've got supermarkets, um yeah. certainly in the UK. It's a little bit different down here in downtown Bangkok. We've still got wet markets. Oh, God. So, um, yeah. Uh, no bats. Don't worry. No bats. <laughs> um, but... um Yet, but we do we do have obviously um, food producers that bring it to the wet yeah. market, but it's all sort of obviously on the ice. It's all open open air. Yes. Um, but yeah, the western the western produced foods um, in my local supermarket, which do deliver online, thankfully, yeah. is obviously very expensive. So it has changed the way I eat um, here.
2: So. Yes, yeah, that must be difficult. Yeah.
1: That's a challenge, but you know, nose to tail. So, you were mentioning about offering heart.
2: Yeah. I mean, these are really cheap, certainly in the UK. Um, people feed their dog. You know, the butcher will often give it away for free for people's dogs. I'm thinking, hang on a minute, you know, heart is really nutritious, liver is really nutritious. Um, mm. probably mm, would yeah, go to, I I'd, I'd probably wouldn't would stop at brains, but I know some people wouldn't, mm. but I'm, I'm not very keen yeah. on that. You know, it's probably fine, mm. fine. I've just got inherited my grandmother' uh, her whole set of um, her uh, cookbooks, and some of the recipes there are really interesting. A lot of brain used back in the early nine, uh, 20th century. You know, the mm. diet was completely different. I mean, they did have the odd cake on Sunday, so there's cake recipes, and sugar was a bit of a, a luxury item. But basically, people were eating quite a lot of meat. Um, and a lot of offal during that time, so I thought that was another eye opener as well. We've come so far away from um, our the way our food produced. People just don't know about it.
1: Yeah, mm. definitely. Which is which is which is delicious here because we actually have certainly a lot of nose to tail in in the in our butchers, which is really again it's made me revisit a lot of what my grandmother would have cooked as well. So. And that's like um, actually like the clotted blood. So they have that in the boat noodle soups. Um, there's obviously bits of the animal that you wouldn't find in your, um, you know, in your in your supermarket in your waitrose um, mm-hmm. so, you know, supermarket. Uh, yeah. But they have, um, you know, the wing tips. Um, you know, they have feet. They have, you know, the hocks. Those sorts yep. of things. Um, every part of the animal, um, the intestines liver, kidney, heart, but my favourite is the chicken skins and I can get, like, kilo bags of these chicken skins, which is absolutely a great treat. Yes, Um, yeah. yeah. Deep, deep fried.
2: I know. I I think um, if, if we choose to kill an animal, making use of the whole of that animal is just respectful, really, and economical and better for our health as well. Um, I went to great lengths to get chicken feet locally. That was quite hard. I had to go to a chicken kind of um, abattoir, as it were, somewhere where they just killed local chickens and asked them to save the feet for me so I could make a really good chicken scoot soup. It was quite labour intensive. I don't know if I was doing it right, but I was was cutting off all the little nails and cleaning the skin on the feet, which was a bit grubby, and then blanching it and then peeling off the skin of the feet so it was quite a process but it was a delicious soup in the end yeah but,
1: you know here but here but here they actually saw them separately so at my, my i call a chicken lady so chicken lady in the in the um in the wet market so she has the feet and which is really great when i'm you know fasting and making um a bone broth so the carcasses which include the neck and the head
3: yeah
1: so um yeah so they have the feet with with the skin and the nails, which is really great for your bone broth, so it makes it really quite gelatinous. but then what they'll do is exactly what you did they'll peel the skin off mm. and i sent um I sent my my husband partner down down to the local market, and you know they have the little bags which the little bags of these mystery you know chili sort of salad type sort of stir fry things. So he came back and he thought it was obviously chicken in this um, minced chicken, but it wasn't. It was the skin of the chicken feet and it was sort oh. of really quite chewy and yep. rubbery. And I'm going, this doesn't taste like what we thought it was going to be, like a pork or, you know, whatever it was. And then we're sort of examining it and it's going, this was the chicken feet, this is the skin of the chicken feet. And so it's just like nose to tail. It's yeah. literally nose to, yeah. nose, nose to claw. Yeah. You know, we're <laughs> all good. Yeah, probably so, really um, good for you. Yeah,
3: yeah.
2: I know, mm-hmm. it's the next level, isn't it? I mean, the French are quite good at that sort of thing. I, You know, I go to, like, when I'm over in France, which I go to regularly, they quite often serve, you know, um, like, awful of some description. I, I have been presented with brains in France as well. And I'm um, looking back at traditional, Uh, diets as well, hence the Western price um, mention. They they also used all that kind of head to tail stuff as well. Um, And traditional Scottish, a lot of um, like black pudding, again congealed blood, oatmeal, uh, the pluck that they say, but that's the lungs and the stomach and the kidneys. So. Mm You know, it has been used, but people nowadays are really squeamish about it. And it's because they're so far removed from the food production. So that's, you know, I think that's quite important that kids are introduced. And our our kids certainly were introduced to whole animal eating and taken to see the animal, how it eats. You know, the animal is only as good as the quality of the diet it gets. So shoving, um, you know, grains down cows is not ideal the grass-fed and grass-finished, which is key, Um, cows is preferable. But I saw a tweet the other day about somebody who said they were visiting a cattle farm in the kind of 70s or something, and they were using an excess of, I think they must have had a sweet factory close to them, and all the broken-boiled sweets were in his barn to feed to the cattle. You know, I think cattle, if, you know, people don't really supervise what, you know, cattle are fed. And I'm sure they're fed a lot of things that, you know, would raise eyebrows amongst, you know, everybody, really. Um, and also, I've, I read somewhere in the farming press that they're now issuing farmers with diabetic keto monitors, um, not keto monitors, glucomonitors for cattle, because they're becoming ill and diabetic themselves because of the artificial food they're given. And probably the very, very high sugar diets.
0: Yeah. And that was partly what we think led to mad cow disease, wasn't it? The fact that they were being fed things that they yes. wouldn't naturally eat. Yeah. Yeah. So
2: uh, again, and, and that's in a, you know, reasonably extensive farming system. So it's quite difficult to know what to do about that.
0: Yeah. I think we're more lucky in the UK than, say, in the US,
2: where they oh yeah have a lot.
0: Yeah, I mean,
2: planning permission is in for the big feedlots in the UK. I really hope it doesn't get the go-ahead, but the way things are going, you know, it very well might, which is a big worry, really.
0: Yeah, yeah, we've got a local butcher that he grows his grows his own cows. That's good. Isn't <laughs> <it>? <laughs> he has his own cows, and that you see them out and feeding on the on the grass. And I only buy my offal from him. Yes, yeah. You know, I might have supermarket meat sometimes. Uh, I, you know, it is more expensive, so we just do it sometimes. Yes, but definitely all my offal comes from him. Yes, yeah, that's great,
2: and it puts more business their way as well. You know, local butchers—something to be supported, in my
3: opinion. Yeah, definitely.
1: But it's certainly something that you were mentioning about is the building of relationship. So you're building relationships with these small businesses, yeah. these these entrepreneurs. Yeah. You're building a relationship to say, look, you know, this is this is what I need, you know, can you supply this? Yeah. And really it's those conversations with the producers to say, look, you know, this is what I'm trying to do. Can you help me? Yeah,
2: and then <laughs> they do always ask because it's usually quite unusual what we ask for and they're sort of asking us why. So it's a really good um, opening into talking about diet, low-carb, etc., uh, etc. Et but a lot of butchers uh, and people who do grow their own food tend to agree. So they, they've always thought that it's, you know, between the small producer and the, you know, the, all the, process, the food processors spin a different tail really that the public, um, you know, are, are susceptible to, I think.
1: What were your takeaways from like the Western price? So for if you were mentioning to someone that haven't hasn't heard about the philosophy of Western price, you know, how would you describe the Western price approach?
2: Um a well, Western price also was a dentist who toured the world in the uh, 19- 1900s might have been the 18 1900s mm-hmm. looking at traditional societies and just looking at why they were so healthy and um, he noticed that most of them were all eating uh, animal products I don't think he found any vegetarian groups and that these animal products were full fat and that that, Mystery ingredient in the animal fat, K two, had led to a really great formation of the skull and jawbone and the teeth, and that was a particular feature that he found in most indigenous sort of um, traditional societies. Really good jaw development and good health, and consequently good bone health as well. And he related that to the kind of animal diet, the traditional full fat, you know, home reared animal diet so um, that just got me thinking I was, and it struck me that they knew that back then I thought golly what has happened in the meantime and then I got me, that led me actually to reading a book which I was going to mention to you which is about a guy a doctor in Scotland in the again the early 1900s who again was really um interested in diet and nutrition and he was looking at the local Scottish population and again made the same observation as uh, Western Price that the full fat varieties of milk, cheese, animal products were making people healthier than all the refined carbs, which I think at that time had just been introduced and it was a bit of a thing to have lots of white bread and, you know, and um,
0: for the listeners, tell us the title yeah. of the book. It's called A
2: Doctor in the Wilderness by Walter Yellowlees. Uh, there he goes. And he was, uh, I think, up in the Highlands of Scotland. So uh, really worth inter- uh, reading. It's a really interesting little book.
0: And A. Price, he, he recognised that when you started introducing sugar into the diet, then all the teeth started to...
2: Yes. And that was and sugar and refined carbohydrates, of course, that has the same impact yeah so yeah uh, and so that just just really interesting first time i would heard of it who and who knew about Western price so I think they, they really um, started it all off for me and you know I think they've done a lot that isn't really ignored acknowledged, acknowledged within the low-carb
3: community
0: yeah so tell us a little bit about your diet as in what would you eat on a typical day uh, at the
2: moment um I'm probably having um I, I have a smoothie just because it's quicker in the morning for breakfast, avocado, coconut milk, yogurt, um some greens, a few supplements, quiz it and go, so I do that. In the in the at uh, lunchtime I have fish and salad uh, with fruit, you know, because I, I do eat a little bit of fruit, uh, especially berries, and for dinner I'll have uh, meat or fish again. With uh, loads of veggies, so I do load up on my green and low carb veg. I'll occasionally have sweet potatoes. I grow my own potatoes, so I have them. I think you know, but not not a huge amount. Mm. But that's it. So and my need to snack all the time, which I had before, has gone. So I can keep you know my eating to within like two or three meals a day without any snacking. And if I was to snack, I'd probably have nuts or again, um, you know, berries and yogurt or something. Occasionally I'll yeah. have oats because um, I'm a Scot and I do love porridge. Yeah. But I try and make it, you know, high fiber oats, add seeds to increase, you know, reduce its glycemic load and uh, don't overcook it. You know, lovely. It's a lovely actually, with cream. Oh, that's a traditional Scottish dish really lovely salted porridge and cream oh stunning (laughs) anyway and that's another thing that I would have um, done earlier is made sure I had enough salt because at the beginning of my low carb journey I was feeling a little bit lightheaded especially in the summer and I run low blood pressure anyway but um, low carb was making it run even lower so I was getting a bit dizzy So I realise now that I should be having at least five grams, five to ten grams of salt a day, and I was having hardly any. (laughs) So that's made a difference. So I think people need to be aware of that.
0: Definitely. I'm always telling my clients to load up on the salt. Yeah,
2: yeah. So I think you can get little electrolytes. I don't know. There has to be a balance between the sodium and potassium, I think. But I don't know enough about that.
1: And any fasting? So you sort of you mentioned about um, two maybe two meals a day. So there's yeah. a bit of intermittent fasting, or have you done any extended fasting? Um, I think I'm too thin to do
2: that, although I'd really like to. Um, I my fasting you know I finish eating at half six seven every night and then don't have anything to eat till usually about ten. So that's my every day, and that's just naturally me. I mean, I'm not hungry, so. I go up, do stuff, probably exercise before I eat to maximise ketosis. And then um, I eat at 10 o'clock and, you know, maybe have three meals between 10 and 6 or 2, depending. Yeah. But my husband, he does longer fasts. And it would be great because, you know, it's quite hard for me to get into ketosis. Actually, I'm always hovering around about 0.3 to 0.8, just all the time. So I don't know,
1: but that—that that is that you—you you are,
2: yeah, yeah, you, you are right. So you um, but you always read about these big beefy guys on Twitter reaching like four and eight. You think they must have masses of fat to mobilise, I guess, because I, I don't really have much. So and I'm I guess I'm a fat burner by kind of metabolic type. Yeah. So and you don't need to chase the number.
0: No, you, you've yeah. got. To keep- You've got ketones. Oh,
2: right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested particularly because um, I think I mentioned to you when we were talking earlier that unfortunately a big blow to me, especially as a dance and Pilates teacher, I was diagnosed with uh, Parkinson's last summer, which absolutely a um, big shock to me, um, but really got me interested in a ketogenic diet because there is some suggestion that that might be a way to treat some of the symptoms and potentially slow the progression of Parkinson's. So, yeah, I was interested in that. So I noticed that, you know, I wanted to be in ketosis for as long as possible for the brain benefits,
3: basically. Yeah.
1: Naturally, the actual, the ketone, yeah, will certainly help with the inflammasones yeah. in reducing any further inflammation. So what was, what led to the diagnosis? What were some of the symptoms that obviously of concern that led you to um, um, getting this?
2: Well, I've, I've had it for years. <laughs> so I'm 60 now and I reckon I've had it since 50. And I have just noticed I'm really active and my blood metrics have always been like stellar. You know, there's nothing. And I went to the doctor because I was getting tired after exercise. And I was getting persistently stiff down my right side. I couldn't figure it out. First that all, all, I thought I did a stroke, but I hadn't. And as I say, my, you know, lipid profile, my high sens- sensitive to CRP, right like 0.3, all my inflammatory markers low, uh, HbA1c low. You know, it was a mystery to me and the doctor didn't know. And then after a CrossFit, an intense CrossFit session, and my right side just began to shake and it wouldn't stop. So I thought, well, that's a bit odd. And also my right leg wasn't moving as quickly as my left leg when I was dancing. So because I am quite in tune with my body, I noticed the right side was slower. When I was stressed, it would shake a little bit, although I don't have tremor. That's not my kind of Parkinson's. I'm more kind of stiff because only two thirds of people with PD get tremor. And um, so that uh, took me off to my GP and she sent me to a neurologist. And he spent only about half an hour and went, yes, you've got Parkinson's. I thought, ah, oh, help. Not in the family, nothing. So um, a bit of a mystery. I would probably put it down to, I don't know, but yeah, dysbiosis is something that um, they've realised can be a feature or a, a reason they think it's just a theory that, that might uh, cause Parkinson's. And it's the connection between the um, gut and the brain via the vagus nerve. So they think a misfolding of some damaging proteins starts in the gut. And I certainly had had IBS symptoms all through my 40s, but then so does half the country, so I didn't think anything of it. And that misfolding protein actually travels up the vagus nerve to the basal ganglia and then spreads out through the brain from there affecting substantial nigra where, where the dopamine cells are so it starts knocking these out and then it in fact transmits all through the brain so joy of joys there we are but it's one of the fastest growing neurological conditions in the world especially amongst younger, younger people so another I feel like a kind of crusade that it's another issue probably with our food production system. You know, I think pesticides have a major part to play in neurological uh, disease and probably a lot of cancers uh, and, you know, autoimmune conditions as well. And I cannot understand why people don't shout louder about use of pesticides. Because I live rurally, I know potatoes are, they're spraying them three times a week at the moment. Because it's been warm, humid, you know, they don't want the um, potato uh, rot so you know that is massive and then you know uh, that leads me
0: to and I guess if you're living locally I mean we, we've just over the back our house backs onto fields yeah. where they're spraying crops yes on. even if you're not eating that food we're ingesting the pesticides oh absolutely
2: and it's found that you know they did all the research with bees and the Munich debate and the fact that was killing bees, and they noticed bee could bees could um they could carry pollen for miles anyway. But also the pollen with the neonic contamination, which was largely rape seed pollen, was being found miles from the source. So that pollen is kind of uh, spiked with pesticide, and people are being exposed to that as well as wildlife. So everybody's focusing on the bees and the effect of pesticides on bee populations, which quite right, is a big issue because they pollinate half our vegetables and fruits. Mm. Um, so they're they go, we're scuppered. Um, but also the effect of these in the air on people. And, you know, we have fields around our primary school, around our sheltered housing. So they're vulnerable groups of people which are being exposed unnecessarily, in my view, to neurotoxins yeah. because that's what insecticides are glyphosate, the herbicide, actually was first patented as an antibiotic and that can disrupt the microbiome. And I think it was the Soil Association that did the survey a couple of years back looking at loaves of bread, conventional bread that you buy in the shop and, you know, a huge, 80% had uh, glyphosate residue in it. So, yeah, I think... The microbiome also probably being affected by our lifestyle and our, the types of food we're consuming. Um, these foods are probably laced with pesticide.
1: Can you tell us a bit more about the microbiome? So just, you know, we've heard a lot obviously about, you know, the gut-brain connections mm-hmm. sort of thing. So what would be a way of explaining it for the listeners in, in basic low terms. Well, I'm no
2: expert, but I take it to believe that there's a whole colony of a good and sometimes bad bacteria and protozoa, fungi, other microorganisms in the gut, which have a symbiotic relationship with the humans. So they can provide vitamins and minerals for us, and we provide through our food intake and um, Food for them, but the composition of that gut microbiome is essential for health and um, so if you as far as I know, I think they need to eat a lot of fiber, so hence our high fruit and fiber and um, message or i I, I tend to agree with that, but I know some people don't. Um, but I think you know, high fiber is probably essential to the gut microbiome. I'd be interested to hear your views. And um, but on the other hand, the specific profile of that gut microbiome might just be a reflection of the food you're eating.
3: Yeah.
2: So I don't know. It, it might be very dynamic. It might just change according to your circumstances and your food intake. So it's all. It's very new research at the moment and. I don't think Tim Spector's doing a lot on it. Um, He's the chap? Jeff Leach, I think, in the States, doing a lot of research into looking at the maybe potential of injecting um, faeces, poo, from a healthy person mm-hmm. into somebody who hasn't right. got the health because they have a disrupted mm-hmm. microbiome. So the good bacteria mm-hmm. in the poo from the healthy person. When right. given to the ill person, actually improves their health via a mm. rebalancing of the gut microbiome. But, and they're, they're doing mm. that yeah, for...
1: Fecal, fecal transplants. Yeah, that's mm.
2: right. capsules or something, aren't they? Um, I think,
1: there, yeah, I think um, Michaela, Michaela Peterson actually ended up having fecal, a faecal transplant for her rheumatoid arthritis. Oh, did
2: she? And did she see benefits?
1: Yeah, I'm not really sure. Um, I just remember... One of the podcast interviews, um, she was leading up to having a fecal a fecal transfer because obviously she had um, quite severe uh, the rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah. But yeah. Um, did we see at um, the PHC conference last year the psychiatrist um, Pradama
0: Pradama Singh?
1: Yeah, Singh. Oh, I um, missed that <laughs> Oh no! That's because just fantastic. She- she had a great slide on some of the microbiome that actually produce a lot of the neurotransmitters. Oh. so that's why I was I was interested because you were sort of mentioning about the like the vagal stimulation. Yes, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and, and, uh, and that relationship with the innervation of the innovation of the um, of that. Yeah, and there's I think
2: there's you know there's a lot of serotonin and dopamine produced in the gut itself. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, who knew. I know mm-hmm. it's amazing, it's fantastic, I and mean, it's so interesting that I think we're, it's, we're just at the beginning, obviously, of unraveling the whole mystery of the, the microbiome and its effect on our genetics as well. Oh,
3: golly!
1: And then with your with your diagnosis, how has that changed in terms of how you obviously think about your um, protecting or nurturing a good, a good biome, with has that changed any of the way that you've sourced food or eat food or, you know, since since your diagnosis? Mm,
2: um, I've gone more, I mean, I'm very aware that some people think fruit and veg and antioxidants and, you know, polyphenols and all that stuff are not particularly beneficial for the gut. They might be irritants, the of lectins and anti-nutrients could exacerbate um, leaky gut. So, you know, I'm listening to that, but I don't necessarily agree with that at the moment. Um, so I'm increasing my fiber, fruit and veg, low sugar though, and taking um, a lot of really good uh, animal fatty products as well. I don't, dairy seems to be contraindicated for Parkinson's. I mean, it's just associational data. So not very strong, but I love and it's a shame because I do love dairy. So I am cutting that out. Yikes! So I'm taking things like revolting things like natto for the K2. Ugh. Vile, but you know, needs must. So that's um. So I am trying to source um specific um foodstuffs that might be quite. I mean, you don't get natto very easily in the UK. So. Um, taking more seaweed as well for thyroid function. Um, not, I, well, yeah. One thing which um, I found very interesting was I got my um, 23andMe test done after I was diagnosed just to see if I had a genetic inclination for PD. I, I didn't. Um, but what came up was I was a uh, heterozygous for hemochromatosis. Being a, of great um, Celtic, Scottish, and Irish stock, and most of the Celtic population, I think it's one in five, are at least heterozygous for uh, hemochromatosis. And I'd noticed, you know, if anything, my iron was high normal the whole time, which I thought was, you know, hmm. But I've now, as a consequence of learning that, I've backed off a little bit on liver and red meats. Or at least making sure I eat them with a lot of phytate, so spinach, so that I'm not absorbing so much iron. So that's that something that I found quite interesting from doing the 23 me test. It's given me really actionable um, sort of data, really.
1: So apart from Western A Price, what other um, books or podcasts have you know, influenced you on your journey? And um, well,
2: I think I mentioned Drake um, Con was one of the first texts I read, which influenced me by Malcolm Kendrick. Uh, Jimmy Moore, actually, because he was one of the really early folks um, talking about keto. So his book, Keto Clarity with Eric Westman, um, that was really interesting. I mean, it, would, it was like I'd fallen on a gold line when I found all these people because what they were saying made so much sense. Zoe Harkum. Um, again, really great statistician. Uh, Georgia Eat, uh, diet and brain health. Ted Nyman, looking at the importance of protein. Uh, Ivor Cummings, of course, you know, great, yeah. really interesting. Dave Feldman, I, I'm a classic lean mass hyper responder. So, yeah, uh, we cooperate with Dave and all his experimentation there. So, yeah, a lot of people. Um, it's just really and it's growing all the time
0: and um have you influenced anyone else to change their way of eating
2: (laughs) well i do talk about it quite a lot um i think people they get it but people just do not want to uh, change their diet people are wedded to bread and yeah. you know, I, I'm not going to force it. You know, a, a lot of my cake culture in the village with this amazing bakery, and it's delicious. But I'm mean, offset. I don't eat it. But you know, people just love it. Um, and I feel such a killjoy. But I've influenced my children. There's no escape for them. Some of my friends and my husband's right on board as well because we kind of discovered it at the same time. My other extended family, mum and dad, who are both in the mid 90s, talked to them about it, trying to get mum to eat more liver. Um, My sister and brother in law. So, yeah. And then because of my ambassador role with the PHC UK, talking to my GP surgery and my local CCG as well um, about using diet, low carb diet, to tackle uh, diabetes. Um, and most of them really receptive, but then take it higher and it, they hit a brick wall in terms of um, recommending low-carb for um, blood sugar disorders. Mm-hmm. But, and David Unwin, of course, David Unwin, yeah, Dr. David Unwin.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: So have you had any sort of like aha moments? You know, this this is obviously resonating with you. I just think the
2: aha moment is about... The connection between the gut microbiome, you know, um, how our food is produced, animal welfare, wildlife habitat, reducing our carbon footprint, all these elements have sort of come together for me and that's just made a whole lot of sense. So it's something that affects my whole life, I would say, in various ways.
1: Mm. And that's really you taking that ecological ecological systems yeah and Mm. i
2: think a lot of you know keto chaps and or you know chappesses who come at it from the health point of view need to take it further and look at the the roots of everything uh, look at how food is produced and the interrelationship between for uh, for instance grazing animals the effect they have on the development of grasslands and how it increases carbon capture from the soil because it increases the root growth of the grass. That absorbs nutrients, it provides soil stability, so you're not getting that huge wash-off and flooding that we've seen so often now. So land use is really important uh, to ameliorate the effects of climate change. George Mm Monbiot and I don't always agree, (laughs) she says, as if she's... um, Knows of but you know I don't agree with all he says about um, you know sheep farming and things like that. Mm. So I think overgrazing is a thing, but yeah,
1: yeah, and that's really what you're sort of saying. It's you know in a public health um, metaphor, is that upstream and downstream, and you're talking about the the upstream of the food production coming into that sort of the cycle of the the food to how we actually then produce and manufacture, package, deliver.
2: Yeah, and how, how we live our lives. Accessibility. Yeah, making, you know, mm-hmm. travelling less. So it's all come to a head really during um, the lockdown uh, regarding COVID, how a lot of people around us certainly had to rely on local small producers to get the food. And um, we were all hoping that these habits are going to stay now rather than always outsourcing. It's outsourcing the power to successfully locate you know, uh, and support uh, a good food producer and hence the local economy as well. Hmm.
1: And it was interesting on the Australian news uh, during lockdown that you were mentioning about the organic small producers. And I remember seeing a a news article on exactly that, on how they were actually, because the big supermarkets and and in Australia, we only have the duopoly. So we either have Coles or Woolworths. And they were... Yeah, so we very limited market, but very large market share, and obviously they were the ones that were um, doing the online delivery. So that we do have smaller independent chains, but obviously the the two main uh, supermarkets there. So then it actually gave rise to these local producers, uh, typically these organic um, producers who were then in the market locally being able to do all these deliveries and, you know, they were producing and they were supplying and delivering and that was really great, great for these local businesses yeah. and, yeah, low low footprints, small miles in terms of being able to meet the unmet need because the big producers were, That's right. un-
2: were unavailable. Yeah, yeah, and getting to know your local community. I mean, as a result, our primary schools invited the local producers into the school to teach the kids about food and cooking. So, again, that's quite Mm -hmm. important, isn't it, equipping people with cooking skills so that they feel confident in the Mm -hmm. kitchen.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of those producing. So it was an interesting point that you mentioned about dairy, and obviously you're very lucky being in the UK, and one of my favourite things about the UK was the amount and quality of dairy. And yes, my favourite, my heart bleeds because I cannot access clotted cream uh-huh. here in Bangkok. I
2: knew you were gonna say that. <laughs> oh it's <see. laughs> <laughs> Oh, I had it and strawberries.
1: Anyway. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> so you mentioned um, because the you've cut out dairy? and yes my i uh, feel feel your pain yeah um, i remember one i oh know one 1 July i went dairy free yeah. and um yeah that was that was the hardest 31 days of my life but it's interesting i read an article on um inflammation and dairy so what they sort of said was if you have a predisposition for inflammation or inflammatory conditions then dairy will actually sort of make that worse for you However, if you had no pre- predispositions for inflammatory conditions, then dairy wouldn't affect you, and that was obviously all about the inflammatory markers and responses that are um, uh, actually in, in dairy products. So uh, that was if, I can actually send you or post uh, as, yeah, as that. Yeah, that would be interesting.
2: I mean, you hear so much conflicting, you know, evidence, don't you? I mean, you can look, you know, find a, a clinical trial to support any opinion, I suppose, on dairy. <laughs> um but it's interesting the a1 and a2 so a2 is the original a1 is the recent kind of um adaptation that modern cows have which is considered to be more inflammatory and has that case that slows down the gut causes constipation and might create a kind of opioid type dependency <laughs> so uh that was really interesting because I definitely am addicted to cheese and full fat yogurt, definitely. So I just thought mm-hmm. that I'll get rid of that. But, um, yeah. yeah, it's interesting. And also it's got insulin type IGF 1 in it. It's mm-hmm. quite high in that and it's high in hormones, natural female cow hormones. So that's another thing. So, um, and also raw dairy that, you know, they might, I don't know whether, um, that negates all that you know. It makes it a lot more tolerable to the gut if it's not tampered with. So you have mm. the lactase so, there. Mm. You have maybe you haven't destroyed the proteins in a way that makes them you know inflame the the gut lining. Perhaps
3: do you do you
0: have access to raw milk?
2: Uh, yes, I do. Mm. I have to travel about twenty miles for it. But that's the only place in the county, so yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I think it's getting more, more common now.
1: Yeah. certainly in Australia, raw milk can only be sold as a, a cosmetic product, mm. so as bath milk, uh-huh. um, and obviously that's very sh- um, because of the pasteurisation. So in, in terms of the health health regulation, so it's interesting. Also, that the A1 and A2 debate that the A1 protein is linked to higher rates of type 1 diabetes in children. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yes, yeah, so that was, that was certainly something that I saw on a documentary. Yeah. So I don't know what, how the validity of that, but, um, and that was obviously giving rise to the access so, to the A2. Yeah.
2: So A1 causing an immune response. Yeah. That's. Mm-hmm. Quite an easy way to remember actually. Autoimmune E1. And, oh,
1: yeah. and certainly and that was the the month of No Dairy. I am certainly hi, my name is Louise, and I am addicted to dairy because that withdrawal response, those first fourteen days oh. and who knew about the caseomorphine response. Yes. And who I I'm, I if this was the hard why was this so hard, those first fourteen yeah. days of going dairy free? Yeah. And
2: But then they say that the fats the fats associated with dairy um help improve type two diabetes and cardiovascular disease. So it's a recent paper, wasn't it, that came out saying that. So and also do countries that eat a shed load of dairy, like Switzerland and France, have they got a higher incidence of autoimmune or brain disease or cardiovascular disease? I don't think they do.
1: Oh, oh, that's, no. right. So that's the, oh, well, the French paradox. That's meant to be. Oh, yeah. French, the French
3: paradox.
1: Uh, yeah. oh, mm-hmm. Not a paradox, really.
3: Yeah.
1: Exercise. Let's talk about exercise. So yes. All right.
2: Exercise. I do quite a lot now. I've always done a reasonable amount. I probably start off with uh, more morning exercise before I eat. And I quite like sort of things like Qigong, Feldenkrais, but then go for a, a hit session as well like kayaking and cycling and dance of course as well so fortunately we're on the kind of river here so the kayaks are out
0: every year so that's quite nice yeah feels a bit cold to me (laughs) yeah try not to fall in so would you say that i mean you you're a dance teacher and pilates so exercise features quite highly in your day yeah I guess. it
2: does yeah and also the, you know the evidence is that actually exercise is the only thing that may uh, slow the progression of Parkinson's so it's about releasing all these uh, brain-derived neurotropic factors that encourage new neural connections and increases neuroplasticity so I'm kind of trying to find out more about that So, uh, yeah, and certainly I think everybody should be doing more exercise, especially the type of exercise that we all hate, which is getting the heart up, the sweat on, really feeling out of breath. That's what flushes the brain uh, of toxins and also starts new neural connections. Just walking is fine, you know, low, just gentle activity is great, great for the circulation, but actually for the brain benefits. Ketosis and, you know, high... Energy kind of exercise. Yeah.
1: Sorry, that's just me shaking my head as I walk down the steps of my apartment block onto the street. I think I've done enough Ah, exercise. How many steps? Sweaty, (laughs) flushing. Um, oh. <laughs> just, just going out the front of my apartment. I mean, I do live on the twenty-eighth oh, floor. Oh wow! Of the apartment building. I'm not going. I'm not walking twenty-eight floors down. Oh. I have, I have thought about maybe getting out at the fifth floor and maybe walking down, yeah. the, going out on my local street. But you know, I'm hot and sweaty in seventy. It's difficult in right Yeah, so.
2: definitely. Get up extra early to do it. <laughs>
1: Well, yeah, which is true. Some of the other um, the other Aussies here they will go running around Lumpini Park um, right at, early in the morning. Yeah. So if they do feel inclined, but the thing is about accessibility is the footpaths here is is terrible. You know the the upkeep. It's it's not like Central London where it's perfectly linearly flat. You know the the footpaths aren't absolute nightmare with anybody with a disability yeah so um, yeah I, I mean people do run yeah. um, I have you know people do do I've seen athletic types running up and down the streets but the type of activities I think um, locals locals would do is um, they do they do football mm. uh, badminton so oh, things that are inside yeah, yeah. where you can control yeah. the climate yeah Correct. Um, our local gym here. Uh, so I have one in my apartment complex and I also right. am a member of my local uh, virgin. i they the open at the moment. Uh, they have only just recently opened, yeah. So obviously during during lockdown, yeah. during quarantine we ha- we had to obviously I did a lot of body weight exercises. Yeah. yeah. Um so that was the the prisoner, the solitary confinement <laughs> prisoner workout yeah, routine think, or body weight. I
3: know.
2: It's amazing how you can adapt bits of furniture to kind of enhance your exercise regime, <laughs> door frames,
1: and yeah. The yeah. Body. yeah. And, you know, I just wish um, we interviewed, or well, Jackie interviewed uh, Lisa Bailey. So unfortunately, yeah. I, I don't have my kettlebells, but yeah. I suppose I could no. have lifted up. Um, the eighteen liter sprinkle water bottle that we've got here—that's so, <laughs> about you know 18, 18 kilos. So yeah, and I think you know this this lockdown experience certainly made us, as you said, you know become more innovative. I downloaded a fantastic app, which is I can't you know I think it's the bee's knees, which is called Down Dog. Down Dog. It's um yes, Down Dog has a hit. <laughs> um hit a hip variation so for seven minutes oh yeah um but the, yeah but the yoga one yeah. is absolutely fantastic oh. so um, and you can modify that yeah to um beginner intermediate advanced right. um, flexible um you can sort of yeah do the the vinyasa or the hafa or the flow yeah you know, really good ones yeah. so yeah. certainly
2: i've been um, taking a lot of classes via zoom in the lockdown. And also mm. teaching my own classes at the classes. as well. So, um, yeah, it's made us think differently and it's actually made things really accessible. Yeah.
3: Yeah.
0: So looking back on the journey that you've come and especially with your diagnosis that you've recently had, is there anything you wished you would have done differently or Ooh, you yeah. could have done differently? Yeah.
2: Um, well, I was a veggie for 28 years uh, from the age of nineteen, and when I got to menopause, so I did menopause of late forties. I thought, I'm, you know what, I'm just, I need something with a bit more oomph. But I really wish I'd had a nutrient dense diet a lot earlier, because I was no doubt taking quite a lot of carbs. I think I might have thrown my glucose metabolism out whack, causing you know, glucose spikes affecting brain cells. That possibility, even though I've never had any never been overweight, never had any central obesity, Mark blood markers, absolutely fine. So I don't know about that. But Sally would have had a more nutrient-dense diet with good quality fats from a very early age. And I'm of age, when I grew up during my formative sort of teenage years and early 20s, as no, you know, fat's not good. So we're seeking out mm-hmm. more fat products. And that's the kind of time you really need to... So my kids now have got fats stuffed into them from, you know, teens and, well, very early, that you know, children should be given good, full-fat, you know, food. Um, I wish I'd just started a lot earlier. Fortunately, my mother was a great home cook, and I've got a really good diet, but when I went to uni, I decided I was going to go veggie, and that set the path
0: until I was 47.
1: Yeah.
0: So there we go. So um, we were talking about Lisa Bailey. She was also a vegetarian for... 27 years yeah
2: it's not unusual you know like zoe harkham georgia ead
0: uh
2: lear keith they've all had stories to tell so but i guess we were kind of victims of the big food companies
0: influence in dietary recommendations and all the propaganda that goes with it and we're still getting it now. Oh, yeah. Definitely. It's even more now yeah.
2: that the focus is on that. You know, and the, the kind of wave of uh, veganism has just opened it up. Um, it's a field day for the big um, multinationals now.
1: Yeah. What three tips would you give to someone starting a low-carb or keto journey? Um, I'd say make sure you've got your salt in check figured out. <laughs> Don't be
2: frightened of salt. Um, and you, you obviously have an increased need as keto and low carb. Don't be afraid of really good quality fats, but make sure the fats are good quality. And uh, if you can, I would recommend intermittent fasting as well as a kind of, you know, because I think three meals a day aren't necessarily the way to go. It's not the way that we evolved. So, um, yeah. Yeah. I'd agree with all those. Excellent. And I hate these processed foods like keto bars, by the way. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Thank you, Audrey, for your time today. It's been absolutely fabulously keto having you on the show today um, and sharing your story and your journey. We wish you all the best for your future.
0: Great. Thank you very much for having me. That was a really interesting conversation with Audrey and it was a shock to hear about her Parkinson's diagnosis. But it sounds like... um, She's got all the resources in place to manage it as best she can and hopefully hold it off for as long as possible.
1: Mm. Yeah, and people seem to think that um like keto, low carb may well be the panacea or the cure all for for all ailments. But we know that obviously it does have an anti inflammatory, you know, promise for Loads of conditions, but, you know, it's really hard when we have these sorts of conditions that suddenly appear that may well have developed years and years and years before obviously starting a low-carb or keto journey. But in saying that, you know, it is an anti-inflammatory diet, so it does have properties that will obviously benefit um, many conditions in current treatment
0: forms and, and for the future as well. So... Yeah, we wish, wish Audrey all the best yeah definitely and so if you're looking for the show notes they are on fabulouslyketo.com forward slash podcast forward slash zero zero four
1: so on the show notes you'll find links to the books and the resources that were mentioned in the interview so make your way over to the show notes for further information
0: It would be great if you could support us through Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash fabulouslyketo and you can choose the monthly amount you wish. Can you
1: recommend a guest we can in interview? If you can, click on the link in the show notes to send us your recommendation.
0: Follow us on social media. Our Facebook page is called Fabulously Keto. Or follow us on Instagram, Fabulously Keto One. Did you enjoy the show? Let us know that you listened by tagging us in your Insta story or Instagram post using the handle Fabulously Keto One and the hashtag TFKP. All the links are on the website and in the show notes.
1: If you haven't subscribed to the podcast, click the subscribe button.